2009, October 22nd. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 21, Impacts and Extinctions, the last lecture of Unit 3. So we come to the end of Unit 3. We've been discussing the question of life on, life on the Earth and trying to now get to the end of life. It thought seems to be an appropriate thing to talk about not only the end of life on Earth, but more generically speaking, the end of life, namely death and extinction in the geological record. And we're going to, and because this is, after all, an astrobiology class, I have to finally get some astronomy in here, or I'm just going to basically go nuts. So today is going to be a much more astronomical lecture, which is a nice segue into Monday, where we start talking about life in the solar system, and I'm finally back on at least what is, for me, a lot more familiar and comfortable territory, which means I can loot and pillage some of my older lectures and actually not spend a semi-infinite amount of time on course prep. It's been interesting. It's been really fun going through this section for me because I've read all this stuff for years, but I've never had to organize it to tell someone else about it. The downside of this is I've never had to organize it to tell someone else about it, which has taken an awful lot of time. So I'm hoping that finally I'm going to get into a place where I don't have to spend all of my time doing course prep, which has been fun, and also why the timing's been off a bit, because you've noticed the lectures that kind of hit the bell. I don't like doing that. I hate doing that, but I've been doing it because I, I don't have anything to fall back on for timing of the lectures. So it's going to get more familiar, hopefully get a little better here. So today's lecture is about the role of asteroidal impacts on the history of life on Earth. This is not something that up to even... Maybe 20, 30 years ago, people would have thought was pretty far out and speculative, but in fact turns out to be a very important factor in looking at the history of life. We don't, we like to think of life on the Earth as kind of a self-contained unit and really doesn't care much about the rest of the solar system except for sunlight. Not true. It turns out asteroidal impacts are very important. We certainly have seen how major impacts on the Earth ended about three and a half billion, 3.8 billion years ago at the end of the Hadean Eon. But that doesn't mean that all impacts ended. Simply the really big sterilizing impacts ended at that point. The pace we're going to see actually tapered off some and then has been at a fairly steady state for the last billion years or so. We know this from looking at cratering history on the moon and other places. And this means that impacts still play a role in the Earth's history. We're going to look at the population of objects that are mostly responsible for those impacts, the so-called near-Earth asteroids or any near-Earth objects, NEOs, these are asteroids that orbit near the Earth, and there's maybe 1,000 to 2,000 of them in this region with a size greater than about a kilometer. We're going to look at how, in particular, one specific asteroid impact about 65 and a half million years ago was most likely responsible for the sudden death of all of the dinosaur species on Earth at the boundary between the Cretaceous and Tertiary period. So we're going to look at the evidence for that and see what we can learn about these mass extinctions due to an asteroid impact. And perhaps maybe start thinking about what we should be looking for at other mass die-offs in the geologic past. And we'll end with a discussion of the fact that life isn't always just a continuum on Earth. Sometimes there are tremendous interruptions in life. And there have been, in the last 500 million years, five major die-offs, what are called mass extinction events, which have dramatically altered the mix of life on this planet. And so the most recent of which happened about 65 million years ago and was responsible for opening up the ecological niches that mammals and, by extension later on, us have occupied ever since. So we want to look at what the importance of these are, not only for just the history of life, but also for their role in driving both ecological di and, and animal diversity, 
but also driving evolution. They basically change the landscape in a dramatic way that evolution then begins to fill back up again, as we see in the fossil record of various species. So today's lecture is going to focus on the subject of death on the Earth, if you will. In this case, death by asteroid. So let's go back to the beginning. Now, remember we talked a few weeks ago about the history of the geologic history of the Earth. We talked a lot about the earliest phases of the Earth's existence. The almost 1 billion years that elapsed between the formation of the Earth about 4.6 billion years ago with the rest of the solar system and ending about 3.85 billion years ago that we refer to as the Hadean Eon. Hadean is pretty much called from Hades, the underworld. Now, unfortunately, the person who named the Hadean Eon was thinking about sort of the, the Judeo-Christian view of hell, which is flames and sulfur and stuff like that. But really, the Greek Hades was really kind of a dark, kind of boring place, not terribly flamey. So it's kind of an odd name, but it basically is evocative. During the Hadean Eon, it's very likely that there was a liquid ocean relatively early. We found zircons back about 4.5 billion years, 4.4 billion years old, that very clearly formed in the presence of significant amounts of liquid water. You can see this in the oxygen isotopes within those zircons. The problem is that we pretty much suspect that once you form stable liquid water on Earth, life should emerge almost immediately in geological terms, meaning within a few hundred million years perhaps. So what this may mean is that life may have emerged very, very rapidly during the Hadean Eon. The problem was, during the Hadean Eon, there were numerous impacts that could have hit the Earth of asteroidal objects between 300 and 500 kilometers in diameter. When any of those hit the Earth, basically they would be what we call a sterilizing impact. The impact energy of these things is sufficient to completely vaporize all of the oceans, melt not all of the crust, maybe, but a big chunk of the Earth's crust would be turned completely molten. So you basically convert a steadily cooling sort of water world full of primordial atmosphere into a place in which the atmospheres have been turned to steam by all the evaporated seawater, and the seas have been replaced by molten rock seas. It's not any place that, that life is going to survive. If any life, even simple microbiological life, got any kind of toehold during the Hadean, as soon as a sterilizing impact hit, that's it. Simply wiped it out, wiped the slate completely clean. Nothing to even survive. And you have to wait to start all over again. Yeah, question. Um, would this impact like, set the orbit of the Earth, Earth off? That's a good question. Would the impacts actually alter the orbit of the Earth? They can probably very slightly by changing the amount of en what's called orbital energy in the Earth. But it's going to be a very small effect. There are lots of other things which would cause the orbit of the Earth to change its position, but mostly due to gravitational interactions with stuff very, very early on. Once the Earth is kind of in its orbital position, it's pretty much there to stay. The thing that will actually change it is not the impacts per se. That would change things like the rotation speed and other things. What really is going to change it is, in fact, influences from, say, for example, the planet Jupiter, which still occur to this day, but they're very small. So once you're in this stage, you're pretty much in the orbit you're going to be in for a while. That's a good question, but it's, it, it, the energies involved in the orbit are really big, even compared to these. These look like really big energies. The orbital energy of the Earth is way, way bigger. So it's kind of a tiny pinprick by comparison. Good question. So the thing about these sterilizing impacts is that the last one would have occurred as the impact history begins to tail off on the Earth. So as you go through the, through the formation of the solar system, you start out with a lot of rocks. This is the raw material that's accreting to form the planets. Eventually, you start clearing that out. 
The primary agency for clearing out that rocky matter is in fact Jupiter. The gravitation of Jupiter is kind of the 800-pound dynamical gorilla of the solar system. By the time you get out to about 3.8, 3.85 billion years ago, most of the major big chunks of rock have already been cleared out of the inner solar system. And in fact, the inner solar system will look, to a first approximation, very much like what it looks today. We pretty much have reached the end of the whole assembly process of the solar system. One of the things that this means is that the sterilizing impacts, rocks big enough to go over this three to 500 kilometer threshold that we think is necessary for a sterilizing impact have been cleared away from the inner solar system. There aren't any more there to do any impacting. In fact, today, a three or 500 kilometer size asteroid is actually quite rare. We can, I can name them and probably still have fingers left after I'm done counting. So this is an age where we don't have these kinds of things running around our solar system anymore. But back then we did, and they had a tremendous impact on basically preventing from life getting started. Now, if you look at the history of the asteroid impacts in our part of the solar system, we're not going to tell this from the Earth because the Earth is geologically active and its surface has been repaved many times. But we can look at the moon because the moon is not geologically active and it bears the complete history of the epoch of heavy bombardment on its surface. If we look at the cratering history of the moon, what we find is going back, measuring ages of rocks brought back by the astronauts or by Soviet robotic probes, at the impact rate started out very high, but it began to drop literally exponentially, halving very quickly every few hundred million years. Finally tailing off until we reach the end of the epoch of heavy bombardment around here, about the time that the number cratering rate in some sort of arbitrary unit is about here, about units of about 300. So we're still having big enough impacts to form the big lava flow basins that form the, the big mare, like the, mare, the Sea of Tranquility or the Sea of Storm, Ocean of Storms. But we see that rate beginning to tail off until eventually, coming in around 2 billion years ago, the rate finally actually tailed off to a more or less constant and very, very slowly declining rate. It doesn't go to zero because the solar system is not completely cleared of rock. But it reaches a more or less steady state. So what you, what's not represented in here, this is the cratering rate. This is just simply number of impacts. It doesn't say anything about the sizes of the things that are doing the impact. And this is anything from a fist-sized rock to you know, those big, giant sterilizers. But what really is also going to get folded into this is the sterilizing gigantic asteroids are gone. And you're starting to get down into kilometer-sized stuff, then few meter kind of stuff, and then down to you know, rocks the size of your head. Those are the ones that are going to be remaining, but there's still a whole bunch of them out there. And so we still don't go to zero. We don't actually end impacts. We simply taper off to a kind of constant buzz in the background. Turns out, interesting, we can see a number of these crater impacts left on the face of the Earth due to these past impacts from this sort of constant rate over the past couple of billion years. It's hard to find meteor craters on the Earth much older than a few billion years, again, because of the Earth's geologic activity. In fact, in all, there are only about 50 impact craters larger than about 20 kilometers still remaining on the surface of the Earth, and some of those have actually been found near shore underwater. For example, Chesapeake Bay, you may not think of fact, uh, as a meteor impact site. In fact, underneath Chesapeake Bay in the last few years, a very large meteor impact strike has been found from, from way, way ago. So, for example, one of the youngest meteor craters on the Earth is only about 50,000 years old. It's the Behringer Crater, sometimes called Meteor Crater out in Arizona. 
it's kind of a tourist trap. It's privately owned, but you know, it's really actually worth going to. It's really cool. If you're out near Flagstaff, Arizona, it's definitely worth paying a visit. This was probably a 50-meter-sized chunk of, of rock, a 50-meter-sized asteroid that hit the Earth about 50,000 years ago, and it dredged up a gigantic hole in the ground. 50 meters long, again, sort of think about that as a rock big enough to basically fill half of the football stadium from kind of like the end zone to the 50-yard line. There's a couple of other places. Interestingly, you have to go to very old terrain. Where's some of the oldest terrain? Canada, Australia, Central Shield of Africa. So if you go into those places, you start finding some evidence of some really big impacts. For example, Lake Manicouagan up in Quebec was probably the site of a five-kilometer-sized asteroid that smacked that particular section of continental shield about 214 million years ago. We can age date it from the various rocks that were melted in the impact. This thing is 100 kilometers across. It's been filled in and forested, and it was kind of a funny lake. People sort of knew it was an oddball, but when you finally got up in space and looked down, you went, holy crap, it's a complete circle. This thing is an impact basin. Further away, also in Quebec, are the Clearwater Lakes, which was a pair of rocks that smacked the earth and left two simultaneous craters, which over the years have been filled in with Canadian snow water. They're about 290 million years ago. So these two on the outside were really big impactors. These things were probably things up at the kilometer scale. These were honest-to-God asteroids. And they hit during sort of the, um, the Permian era, Permian period. The very largest remaining crater on the Earth is Vredefort Crater in South Africa. It's the remnants of a 10-kilometer asteroid that smacked into the African Continental Shield about 2.2 billion years ago, leaving a crater, I think it's estimated to be about 300 kilometers in diameter. It's actually barely visible. You can sort of tell it's there by looking at space photography, and, and people that's how people kind of picked it up, was from Landsat photography. So where do these rocks come from? Well, nowadays, instead of the solar system being filled with these, the main sources of asteroid today are the asteroid belt, which lives in the space between the orbit of Mars and Jupiter, and the outer solar system, which is the source of the short and long period comets. We'll say a little bit more about those in the next couple of weeks. The asteroids are basically the leftover rocky and icy material from the formation of the solar system. They found themselves in a nice stable home between Jupiter, which is pushing them around dynamically, and of course the inner solar system, they're more or less cleared. This picture is drawn to complete exaggeration. If you look down on the solar system, you would not see a cloud of millions of asteroids in this belt here. It's only because if I'm going to plot them on a computer, I have to make them really, really big spots. These things are way bigger, these spots are bigger in projection than the whole Earth by a whole bunch. So this is definitely not to scale, but it shows you the locations. You'll also notice there are these interesting pileups here, the green ones and these sort of on two lobes either side of Jupiter, and this kind of red ones here that form kind of a triangle you can kind of see popping out in the color code. These are actually asteroids which are in special orbits relative to the orbit of Jupiter. So it shows very dramatically that Jupiter is strongly, if Jupiter's gravity, Jupiter's 318 times the mass of Earth, is, like I said, it's the dynamical 800-pound gorilla of the solar system. It's stirring these up and it's affecting their orbits. In fact, it is Jupiter that actually sculpts the asteroids into this belt that sets the inner and outer boundaries of where most of the asteroids live. But that's a different story for Astronomy 161. The basic census today of asteroids is there's about 1.2 million asteroids inside the main belt that are larger than one kilometer across. Those are, those are ones that if they hit the Earth are major impacts that can cause tremendous trouble. But only about 100 of those are more than about 140 kilometers across.
In the three to 500 kilometer range, there's literally a handful. So the big stuff is all gone. And of course, there's lots and lots and lots of little stuff. Now, most of them live in the main belt, but Jupiter's gravity does stir them and drop them into the inner solar system. And that makes for a very special class of objects that we're most interested in today, the so-called near-Earth objects, or NEOs. These are asteroids and also some comets that have been perturbed into the inner solar system, primarily by the action of the orbit of Jupiter, or the gravity of Jupiter, that bring them relatively near the Earth. There are a lot of searches for these, for reasons that will become pretty obvious in this class. About 6,300 are now cataloged as of, as of this August, which was the last report that I saw on them. Probably in the estimate is, although we know 6,000 of them, there are many, many more there, the estimates range, that there are probably between 1,000 and 2,000 that are in this one kilometer class. So we're three orders of magnitude, a factor of at least 1,000 down from the population in the main belt, but it only takes one to cause trouble. Now it turns out because of the orbit of Jupiter and because of the gravitational interactions with the orbits of Mars, Earth, and Venus, these things are on gravitationally unstable orbits. They're always getting tugged one way or another, and so they're constantly either, some of them are falling into the sun, some of them are getting kicked out into larger orbits, but they're getting replenished, even if they do get kicked out of their near-Earth orbits, by other stuff getting perturbed down from the outer asteroid belt by the gravity of Jupiter. So we think, at least in the current time, one of the reasons why the cratering rate on the moon and Earth has been kind of at a more or less steady state with a very gradual slight decline over the last two billion years is that the solar, the solar system has reached a kind of a dynamical steady state where asteroids are being lost from the near-Earth asteroid families about as fast as they're being replenished with new stuff coming in from the asteroid belt. And that's why that little constant rate is sitting in the cratering rate. It really has reached a kind of steady state. Now, there's a lot of groups that are very concerned with these things because if, in fact, a near-Earth asteroid comes really close to the Earth, it could hit us, and something in the kilometer scale would actually wipe out a whole state. So these could be major hazards for the Earth. Of course, the Earth is mostly water, so it's more than likely to splash into the water. Oh, good, then you get a mega tsunami, and those are pretty bad, too. So people want to watch and warn for these things. Whether we can do anything about it, well, you can have bad movies like Armageddon or Deep Impact, or you can think about actual programs, too. How do you make an asteroid go somewhere other than hit us? People are thinking about that. Nuke it! Oh, yeah, that might work. Let's break it into lots of little pieces. Um... But remember, these things move slow. They're on orbit, so you can go out and you can nudge them. Just give them a little nudge, and they'll miss the Earth, because the Earth is a really tiny target. So there's a group, for example, one of them is called Space Guard. There's a NASA program called Linear, which is something, something, near-Earth, asteroid, something. I always forget the acronym means. We're searching for these actively, and that's why the number we know has increased dramatically over the last few years. That's where the, these numbers here came from the last Space Guard Linear report. Um, sometimes they come uncomfortably close. In 2004, March, this particular object here, which was given the rather mellifluous name of 2004 FH, passed within 34,000 kilometers of the Earth. That's one-tenth the distance of the Earth to the moon. It was discovered only about three days before it made its closest approach and was able to be tracked for a few days. And this, this beautiful movie here shows the asteroid moving along. Now you see a few jumps here because they didn't quite get the tracking right. And if you watch it as a couple times through the loop, you'll suddenly see this bright streak streak from the upper right, there it went, 
there from the upper right to the lower left. That's a high-altitude satellite that was caught on the frames. This guy was really booking across the sky. The estimate from the brightness measurements is it was about 30 meters across. Something like that comes in and makes a direct stride. It's basically going to have an impact energy roughly equivalent to a thermonuclear weapon. So it would basically wipe an entire city off the map and leave a gigantic crater in its wake. However, something about 30 meters across probably won't survive the passage through the atmosphere unless it comes straight in, which is highly unlikely. Most of these things, because remember these rocks are kind of catching up with us, most of these rocks are going to make glancing passes. They're going to kind of bounce off or hit the atmosphere at a high angle. You've got to really be going almost straight in to make it all the way to the ground in the 30 meter class. But think about 30 meters. That thing would sit from one side of the football field to another on the side to side. That's a big rock. Sometimes we actually can see these come by, see them coming in, and predict they're going to hit. We've, it's taken them years. And finally, a prediction was made in only October of last year, only last year. Asteroid 2008 TC3 was, was found in 20 hours, realized, you know, that guy's going to hit. Luckily, it was small, only about 3 to 5 meters in diameter. Oh, only three to five meters. Just to give you a scale, this is two meters. So put it down here. There's two, four. Okay, so it was a rock that basically would fill the middle of this room. You don't want to be anywhere near where that hits. But it's actually good if it comes straight in. Luckily, it hit the atmosphere at a high angle and actually entered the atmosphere and was predicted to come in over Africa and, in fact, was seen as a bright fireball meteor over the Sudan. It basically arrived right on schedule. People were able to be set up to watch it. Uh, one of the uh, weather satellites, Meteosat, actually caught the fireball in one of its pictures. Uh, sound detectors down in Kenya actually picked up the boom from the entry in the atmosphere. It broke up about 10 kilometers up and broke and fell into pieces. A group of people actually went out there and found a series of rocks, about four kilograms, where the fragments were picked up out in the Sudanese desert up in north, north uh, eastern Sudan. The estimated energy released from the sound waves and from the flash was about one to two kilotons of TNT equivalent. So kind of like the size of a, a modest size uh, aerial delivered conventional weapon. So not, not, not great, but again, you wouldn't want to be anywhere near it when it happened. Rocks of this size hit the Earth probably two or three times a year because they're pretty common. There's a lot of these rocks going out there. What we'd like to know is if any of those has got our name on it, meaning like Columbus's name. We'd like to know if it's going to hit a city or burst over a city. could cause problems. Luckily, this one was out over a pretty un uninhabited part of the, uh, Sudan, Sudan, of the Sudan desert. So people are actively tracking these things, and you worry the bigger they get, because the bigger they get, the more likely they are to penetrate the atmosphere, and the more impact energy they have. The impact energy scales roughly like the mass, and their relative speed squared. So the worst case scenario is a big rock and a head-on collision. That's the one that gets people kind of nervous. Turns out that sometimes these impacts are not so um, benign. Here's one that occurred in 2008 near the Tunguska River in Siberia. This is way out in the middle of just plain nowhere. But in 1908, there was suddenly a release of seismic energy that was detected nearly 1,000 kilometers away, which means all the way into Europe. Their sound waves probably rattled around the Earth a few times. People didn't know what it was, but a Russian expedition, actually a Soviet expedition, went out to the area around the Tungus River and found all the trees flattened for kilometers around, and all the trees were laying away from a central location. 
The, the object that hit could have been an asteroid or a fragment of a comet. The estimation from the amount of energy release was about 40 me meters in diameter. So kind of an order the size of that 2004 FH rock that made that really close near-miss pass. It probably burst in the air that it did left no crater at all, so there was no remnants at all that anyone has ever been able to find, which is one of the reasons why they think it was a comet, because the stuff was volatile. The estimate now is it's probably an air burst. It blew it basically all the energy of impact shattered the object, and you went into an airburst about 10 or 15 kilometers up in altitude. But look at the energy release, 10 or 15 megatons equivalent of TNT. To put that in perspective, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki nuclear weapons were in the tens of kiloton region. The largest nuclear weapon anyone has built, the so-called Tsar Bomba, which was designed by the Soviets, had an estimated yield, of an estimated explosion yield test of only 50 megatons. And people have long since backed away from weapons of that size because they've decided to go for accuracy rather than punch. If that got down and hit a city, that would basically completely obliterate it and its surroundings. So this is the sort of thing that you worry about, and they're not rare. Turns out that strikes of this nature on the Earth, on the Earth are expected to happen once once a century. However, they're primarily going to be airbursts, and most of them are probably going to occur over the oceans. It's interesting that in the historical record, no one records this happening over an inhabited part of the planet. Remember, people have been recording history for about three, four thousand years. There's not even metaphorical reports of these things occurring that anyone's ever been able to dig out of the historical record. So you've got to sort of balance the risk against how big the target is. The target's pretty small, but when it hits, it could be a big deal. And so it's things like this that are why people are watching the skies and trying to watch these things come in. But it gets bigger from there. As we get more and more time, you say, well, it's unlikely for one of these things to hit this year or this century. But remember, one of the real lessons of the Earth's history is the idea of deep time. We're talking now about timescales that go for millions hundreds of millions, and finally billions of years. And when you have a lot of time, that's a lot of time in which very rare things can actually occur with a frequency which is important on geological scales. So one of the places where this comes in is stepping back a little bit and looking through the geological record. We're in the Phanerozoic period. We're in the place between the two periods called the Cretaceous and Tertiary. The Cretaceous and Tertiary periods, or the Cretaceous period, was the height of the, of the time of the dinosaurs. If you look back in the Jurassic and Cretaceous, that's basically the time of the dinosaurs for about 150 million years. And then abruptly, very abruptly in the fossil record, dinosaurs, all big non-bird dinosaurs, vanish from the fossil record during the tertiary period. That's why the how the distinction between Cretaceous and tertiary is seen. Quite a number of years ago in the 20th century, people digging down through the various sedimentary layers that define the geological boundaries between tertiary and later above and Cretaceous and earlier Cretaceous, Jurassic, and so forth below, found that geologically the, the boundary between the Cretaceous and tertiary was geologically distinct. There's a layer of clay, and inside that clay is a sediment containing a lot of soot, carbonized material, and an extremely unusual amount of the rare metal indium. Indium is extremely rare on the Earth. It's not found very often. In fact, most of the indium that the Earth was made of, because indium is a heavy metal, sank to the core with all the iron and nickel. So we don't expect a lot of indium in the crust. And yet in this fine, thin clay layer, there's a layer of iridium that is 100 times the average Earth abundance. 
It simply isn't normal. It just stands out like a sore thumb. However, this iridium content is about what you find in asteroids and chondritic meteors. It's exactly the sort of things when you take an asteroid or meteor fall apart that you find on the ground and you start doing an assay of its chemical contents, they're rich in heavy metals. And the reason is because they come from objects that are usually undifferentiated. They haven't been heavy stuff sink, silicates float to the top. And so the iridium is there in its cosmic mixture, not in its differentiated and sank to the center of the Earth mixture. So there's no way you can belch up material in volcanic form and get a high iridium content from the inside of the Earth. The only place you find high relative iridium content is in meteorites. So this has got Louis Alvarez and people thinking, hey, maybe the reason why there are these wacky heavy element abundances here in the KT clays is because that's the sign of a very, very large asteroid strike that occurred around the time those sediments were laid down 65 and a half million years ago. It's also interesting that at that particular time in the Cretaceous and Tertiary boundary, when we look just past that time 65 million years ago, 75% of all land and marine species just simply died and went extinct, including every single non-avian dinosaur species. There are no large dinosaurs into the tertiary. They simply are gone. What we do see is in a period following a few million years after the beginning of the tertiary is the rise of mammals. So the KT boundary is a very distinct boundary in the history of life. It marks the period between dinosaurs ruling the Earth and the rise and eventual dominance of mammals on the surface of the Earth, and of course, everyone's favorite mammal, us. The favorite explanation for this is the one that was put forward by Louis Alvarez in the, in the late 60s and 70s, namely that the KT boundary we're seeing is the after effects of a massive asteroidal impact on the Earth. If you estimate the amount of material that's found worldwide worldwide, across the entire planet in the KT boundary, you find this high iridium and soot. You estimate that material should have been brought in for an asteroid enough to make up a 10 kilometer diameter rock. Now we're talking huge. We're talking a rock the size of Columbus. It hits with an energy release of 2 million times that of the largest nuclear weapons we've ever made. So 2 million hydrogen bombs going off in an instant. That's how much energy release is done. What is this going to do? Well, it's basically going to turn the rock underneath it molten. It's going to cause gigantic firestorms across the planet from the immediate thermal impulse, as well as all that molten rock and crap suddenly raining down into a wood-covered planet full of oxygen in the atmosphere. The place probably burned all over the place. If it hit in the ocean, which it seems to have done, it will trigger mega tsunamis. Imagine a tsunami wave a thousand feet high rolling around the planet through all the Earth's oceans. So you're going to basically completely disrupt marine species right down, to the, right down into the base of the oceans. You're going to kick up a tremendous amount of debris and dust. When that gets in the stratosphere, it's going to blot out the sun. And estimates are somewhere between 10 and 20% less sunlight. So plants that rely and algae that rely on photosynthesis for life are just simply going to shut off for something like 10 or 20 years. If the plants shut off, the herbivores don't have anything to eat anymore and they start to die. When the herbivores start to die, the predators suddenly don't have anything to eat anymore except each other, and species start going extinct massively. It's a huge disruptive event. We take an entire ecosystem and we basically flush it, except for a small fraction of those creatures that don't rely on the food chain we've just destroyed, that live on the detritus, that live on the junk in between the, the cracks. 
because they can survive on anything. If most of them go extinct too, but a few of them can hang on because they're not the major players in the food chain. They're not big predators have just had all their prey wiped out. And it turns out a lot of those species were the small avian dinosaurs that became the precursors of modern birds and mammals, as well as you know every insect and cockroach on the planet. <laughs> Well, that's a nice idea, but is there physical evidence? And when people curd the Alvarez theory, they say, well, all right, come on, Louis, show us the crater. Something that big has got to leave marks on the Earth. 65 million years is not long enough to erase it from the geological record. People looked for a long time, and it was found by accident by petroleum engineers working for Pemex, the Mexican national um, oil company, out off the coast of the Yucatan. There are very large oil deposits out here in the uh, Caribbean basin and in particular out in Mexico around the Yucatan. They came across, these geologists, one of them was an American, came across unusual minerals inside of offshore drilling off the coast of the Yucatan, pretty much centered around a, a village called Chicxulub, which is out in the Yucatan Peninsula um, boondocks. He was finding things like impact quartzes. He was finding glasses, which normally you don't find, and finding some really crazy stuff. But the oil company said, look, we don't want you telling anyone about this because this is telling people where we're looking for oil and we don't want to give the competition a clue. So this stuff got kind of suppressed for a while, but eventually got published and unearthed. People went back in with studies, for example, of gravity. You can look at the local gravity, which tells you how much matter is below you on the Earth. You can do uh, ground-penetrating radar and space observations. And what they found was, right here off the Yucatan Peninsula, is a roughly 180 kilometer in diameter impact crater. If you date the radioactive dating of all the terrain around there that had been turned into molten rock in this event, you get 65 million years. The size of the, of the impact, the timing of the impact, are all consistent with at least part of the impactor that probably caused the Cretaceous tertiary extinction event. So all, for this used to be, when I was starting out in school back, you know, back 30 years ago now, this was considered to be a pretty way, way out and wacky idea. But in the last few years, it really has emerged as probably the right explanation. Really, dinosaurs really were wiped out by the effects of a massive asteroidal impact. Turns out that mass extinctions happen a lot, well, relatively frequently in the geologic history. Now, it's very hard to look for mass extinctions in the geologic record much further back than about 500 million years. Once you get out of the Phanerozoic into the Proterozoic, the diversity of animal species and marine species becomes different. It's less than it was. Remember the Cambrian explosion at the beginning of the Phanerozoic produced the big explosion in body types. One of those things those body types have are things like shells and bones that leave behind abundant fossils. Before that, it's a lot of soft-bodied, multicellular or single cellular life, which has a real hard time leaving detailed fossil records back. It's harder to do this with single cell life. So there may have been numerous other extinction events in the past, but they don't leave their marks in the geologic record the same way they do once we get into the Phanerozoic. So most of what we know has to do with basically the last 500 and some million years. This plot shows up if you will, a, a histogram intensity of extinction intensity. What fraction of species or, or families or genera that went extinct at various times? And you can see this by sudden changes in the number of species, a sharp, sharp decline in the number of species that appear in different sedimentary layers. And you can see changes like less speciation in the, in the wake of this. 
There are five really big events. At the end of the Ordovician, a section of the late Devonian, a gigantic event between the Permian and Triassic eras, a smaller peak at the end of the Triassic, and then, of course, this big spike right here at 65 million years, which, of course, is the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. In particular, what gets people's attention is this very large spike here at 251 million years ago at the end of the Permian era and the beginning of the Triassic. It's referred to by paleontologists as the Great Dying. 98% of marine species simply vanished from the face of the earth and 77% of land species. Something bad happened to the earth between 250 million years ago and we really don't know what. Could have been a massive asteroidal impact, but we haven't found the smoking gun in the same way we found the Chicxulub crater that's the smoking gun of the KT event. There's no iridium layer giving it away. So something bad happened. Now, iridium is not a necessary uh, component of an asteroid impact. You can have a massive cometary impact, which doesn't have a lot of heavy metals, but has a lot of mass, will produce a lot of kinetic energy, but will pretty much wipe itself out in the explosion. So we don't know that the Permian here was ended by an asteroid impact, but the success with the KT boundary has got people looking around the Earth for possible events. Notice, for example, 250 million years is not the same as 214, which was the Lake uh, Manicouagan event. So there's a lot of asteroid impacts during the Permian, but none of them seems to be big enough to have done the job. Maybe it was multiple impacts or a storm of impacts. No one's sure. Maybe the impact occurred in the deep ocean crust. 200 million years ago, some of that crust could have been wiped out and the asteroid impact with it. The further back you go in time, the harder it gets because geology is working against you. But you do see the after effects here in the extinctions. But extinctions are not all bad. I know, we're trying to put a silver lining on the death of 98% of the things in the ocean. But in fact, if you look also in that record, Following mass extinctions is a general increase, for the most part, in biodiversity. Even a massive extinction here, like the Cretaceous tertiary, can be accompanied at a time of tremendous diversity, and life can manage to, to muddle its way through. So this plot shows the number of genera and thousands of genera that are well known through the geological record. Some of this fall off is, in fact, due to incompleteness in the geologic record, but you can piece things together. So what you see is a sort of a long-term trend, a sudden increase in species in the Cambrian at the Cambrian explosion, the warm period of the Earth around here or through the early part of the Phanerozoic, the tremendous dying off here between the Permian and Triassic, the rise of the dinosaurs in here through the Jurassic and Cretaceous, tremendous increase in diversity as dinosaurs and mammals came up, the immense dying off here at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, and then the explosion of mammal species into all the ecological niches cleared out by the big dinosaurs. Yes, ma'am? How much extinction does there have to be for it to be considered an event? That's a good question. I tried to look that up. I think basically you have to lose about half the species in a very rapid period of time. So that's roughly the number sort of tens of percents. You have to basically wipe out whole biota, whole families, all, whole gen, gen, um, zoological families all at once and do so across a very wide spectrum. So, for example, some creatures are just going to be able to hunker down. You know, you know the, 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 uh, the proverbial cockroaches kind of hang out, right? So they're going to basically ignore the impact unless they're right under the rock. But 
what you have to look for is just basically a tremendous drop in the number of species, and you're looking at tens of percents to be able to make that drop occur. An interesting number along those lines is, is a, you always hear this number, and I've, I've not been able to compute it myself, but I've seen it repeated enough that it's probably true. 90% of all species that have lived on the Earth have gone extinct. The, the tremendous biodiversity we see right now is only 10% of all the living things that have ever been on the Earth in terms of the actual types, meaning genera. Not, not raw numbers, right? It's not like we're counting up one, two, three, four, five dead things. But in distinct species, distinct types, 90% of all species are gone. Some of them, everything goes extinct at some point. So you have to have a big event. You have to basically really tear out a whole big chunk of the biosphere to do this. And so, for example, you, along those lines, one of the pieces you hear in the debate right now, especially over the possible human impacts called global warming, that one of the fears of global warming or massive global warming of the atmosphere, if it causes massive shifts in climate and massive shifts in basically the, the food chain, you upset the food chain of, of vegetation or oceanic or otherwise, could lead to an extinction event which is comparable to what we see in the geological record that may have been accompanied by things like snowball earth events, um, massive asteroidal impacts, maybe massive evidence of, events of volcanism. And we don't know what caused these here. The only one we're really sure of the cause of is right here, the Cretaceous and Tertiary. The other possible causes for these guys are unclear. Massive volcanism could do that. If you suddenly had a volcanic outbreak, for whatever reason due to continental drift, you just opened up a gigantic magma pocket, you could belch enough dust and junk into the upper atmosphere to shut down sunlight or shut down 10 or 20% of sunlight for a decade or two. That will have exactly the same effect as an asteroidal impact throwing dust up and causing this kind of a dusty winter that kills off photosynthetic plants. You screw up the food chain. Uh, the other possibility is glaciation, a snowball earth event back as occurred, for example, during the Proterozoic. You freeze the oceans down to a kilometer depth, you're going to kill a lot of stuff in that process. You're going to wipe a lot of the uh, ecological niches clean. So, for example, the Cambrian explosion here about 545 million years ago. One of the ideas for why there was a sudden explosion of biodiversity is one of the last, the last snowball earth event was at the end of the Proterozoic. And it could be that that event cleared up enough of the ecological niches and provided enough of the selection pressure on the populations on the Earth that when the snowball Earth event eased off, life radiated out into the suddenly cleaned up biosphere and was able to suddenly explode in biodiversity because along the way it had evolved to the point that there was now multicellular life and there was sexual, re sexual reproduction, which leads to a tremendous amount of, of genetic diversity. And once you have huge genetic diversity, it's a huge engine for the evolutionary process of natural selection to occur. So you, can, you don't have to have an asteroid strike. Now, people are obviously looking for an asteroid strike because, well, okay, scientists are people too. We look for our car keys under the street light. Okay? This succeeded spectacularly, so it tells you it's actually worth making the look. It's just going to get real hard. So we see that, that extinctions are common, are relatively common, although interestingly, a trend you'll notice here. There are minor extinction events. There's the big five that, that everyone talks about, but there are also relatively minor ones as well. And you'll notice that they tend to be all piled up here towards the, you know, about 150 million years ago back to about 500 million years in the past. There have only been two in the last 150 million years. 
There's two ways to interpret this. One is greater diversity, if you will, makes the biosphere a little bit more resilient. There's a lot more diversity that can radiate into new niches. And so things that can interrupt it, like a heavy glaciation period, if it isn't covering the entire Earth, doesn't wipe out a lot of species because there's a lot of room to work. The other is that the rate of asteroidal impacts has been declining steadily. It's slow, flatter than it was, but it has been declining. And you expect a kind of a big extinction class event to occur roughly every few hundred million years. So either this is telling us we're due for an extinction class event or something's changing in the extinctions. It's not just impacts, but there's other drivers that are working together to basically slow this down. Of course, having said that, tomorrow, you know, you know, we get, we get nailed by a big asteroid. Well, I think at this point we'd see it coming. Whether we can do anything about it is all, it's hard to say. So it's really only a matter of time. One thing we can say with certainty is that an asteroid will hit the Earth with extinction class power sometime in the next few million years because it seems to happen every few million years. If you look at this plot here, shows impactor size from one meter up to 100 kilometers and the typical time between impacts. You know how big the reservoir is and you know what the distribution of sizes are. There's a lot more small things, so they're more likely to hit you than the big thing. Right? Bigger things are rarer. Therefore, the likelihood of it hitting you is proportionally rare. So you get this nice little log-log plot here. So about once a year, we expect something of sort of meter class to hit us. And sure enough, that Sudan event in 2008 was about a three to five meter chunk of rock. And we think about two or three of those happen a year. Something about 10 meter class, 30 meter, 40 meter class maybe happens once a century. Hmm. The last such one that hit the Earth was the Tungus River about a century ago. 1908. So, law of averages says we're about due for another kind of 10 meter class thing. Maybe that close pass in 2004 was it? Maybe not. We don't know. That's why we're watching the sky. Something like the big Behringer meteor crater, those maybe happen every few thousand or 10,000 years. We certainly know that something the size of Behringer hit the land about 50,000 years ago. Land surface is roughly one fifth the surface of the Earth. Play the averages, so every few thousand years, 50,000, 10,000 years, works out okay. Something like the Manicouagan strike, a few kilometer, probably happens every 100 million years, every 150 million years, for something of the KT boundary extinction. Something of the, you know, mass death of everything on the planet, 100 kilometer, maybe once in the Earth's history, or the Earth's remaining history, since the end of the Hadean. But it's pretty clear that in the next few million years, something in the widespread devastation, climate disruption, or mass extinction zone will occur. We see at least one case where it happened, hints where others have happened, and the question is, it will happen again. It's only a matter of time. Any questions? Good. In that case, I will see you all tomorrow for quiz number two.